walking in a country road And I been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 41. I'm Dave Woodson. Nobody asked me my name. This is going to be the last episode for a while. I'm announcing that up front this time, both because it's actually planned this time, and because I don't want anyone to worry. There were some very kind people worried about my well-being when I dropped off the radar last time around. No such worries this time. I'm probably fine. I'm recording this in mid-January 2020. In a little over a month, I'll be flying east to Delaware, USA, to begin a very long walk. I will follow the American Discovery Trail westward from Cape and Lopen, Delaware, on the Atlantic coast, passing through Maryland and D.C., West Virginia and Ohio, Indiana and Illinois, Iowa and Nebraska. And then, just before the ADT veers southward into Colorado, I'll instead split off and follow the historic Oregon Trail onward through Wyoming and Idaho, and eventually back home to Oregon, and then the Pacific Ocean. This is the second part of my year walking through the USA, after an earlier 2,000 miles through the Midwest between Cincinnati and Denver. If you're interested in following along, I'm writing stories from the road at davewitson.com and posting pictures to Instagram and Facebook. Look for the DaveXUSA page. I've also been developing a separate podcast on the American Discovery Trail, It's called Sea to Shining Sea, so if you miss hearing my sibilant S's and sagacious hmms, you could always track those down. All of those different sites are linked on DaveWitson.com. With all of that said, I'm very pleased to be leaving town on a strong note, and I believe this episode is one of the best I've put together. Full credit for that goes to this episode's lone guest, Guy Stagg. In 2013, Guy departed his London home on New Year's Day and then began a pilgrimage from Canterbury, not only to Rome, but then onward to Jerusalem. His account of that journey, The Crossway, is one of the most remarkable pilgrimage books that I've read. A candid and poignant personal story, combined with striking settings and a series of dramatic and tension-filled events, and genuinely insightful ones. Guy is unusually self-reflective and thoughtful, and this conversation, I hope, will challenge or stimulate your thinking about topics as varied as loneliness, suffering, prayer, and belief. No other guests today. It's just Guy for the full hour. But by the end, I suspect you'll be wishing for a second hour. You're just going to have to pick up the crossway. I hope you enjoy Guy Stagg is the author of The Crossway, an account of his 2013 pilgrimage from Canterbury to Jerusalem, and the Edward Stanford Travel Memoir of the Year for 2019. Thanks very much for speaking with me, Guy. Thank you for having me. What inspired you to make this pilgrimage? In 2012, I was just coming out of a long period of mental illness, 
And at this point, I was coming off antidepressants and I was looking for a way to to test myself, to challenge myself and maybe rebuild myself. And at the time I was living in London. And so I thought, well, why not go on a short walk? And the route I came up with was the route that the pilgrims take in Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales, which is a route that follows the Thames eastwards out of London and then goes down towards Canterbury, which is in the sort of southeast corner of England. And this route is about 70 miles, I think. And at this point in my life, I had done very little hiking, very little walking. So I sort of thought to myself, well, if I can walk maybe 30 or 35 miles a day, I can do the walk in (laughs) in about two days time. And I thought I'm young, I'm fit, the weather forecast is pretty good. So I don't need to do much planning or preparation. And obviously, this is not what happened. So along this walk, I got lost, I got rained on, I got sunburnt, I got terrible blisters. But I did make it to Canterbury in the end. And I was doing this walk over the midsummer weekend. So the days were very, very long. And when I reached Canterbury, the cathedral is surrounded by a sort of a wall of medieval buildings. So when you enter the cathedral close, you step out of a small but fairly busy city and you you move into the grounds of the cathedral and it's calm and it's quiet and it's still. And as I entered the cathedral, I lay down on the grass outside the building and I felt this enormous sense of relief. It was almost a sense of healing. Now, outside that cathedral, there's a very small plaque with the words Via Francigena, Canterbury to Rome. And when I first saw this plaque, I knew nothing at all about the medieval pilgrimage routes connecting Europe. But I I knew that I had got something real and something almost tangible out of the experience of just that two-day walk. And so I thought to myself, well, why not keep going? So what I did is I, I then went back to London and I went online. And I very quickly found out that not only was there the Via Francigena, this route from England down to Italy to Rome, but that that was just one of a, a network of pilgrimage routes that really connected up the entire continent. And that with a bit of imagination, it was possible to chart out a route first to Rome, then from Rome to Istanbul, and then from Istanbul all the way to Jerusalem. And so that first pilgrimage was Midsummer's Day 2012. Six months later, at the beginning of January 2013, I went back to Canterbury. This time I was a little bit better prepared and I started walking. And this time my destination was Jerusalem. It comes across in the book and even in what you've just described as basically the call to action, as though it's almost irrational. You are pushed forward onto this pilgrimage. Is that fair? Yes, yes. I think that's a good way to describe it. And the way that I I understood it in my own mind was that I felt quite a strong sense of compulsion that I didn't know how to explain that sense of compulsion. No experiences in my life up to this point had given me a language with which to talk about it. But I hoped and I I think I trusted that if I set out on the experience, then I would begin to understand it better and better the further I went along. That maybe if I didn't understand at the beginning, I would certainly understand by the end. 
as you set forth from Canterbury following a short stretch in England, it's January. And I haven't walked the Via Francigena in France. I've walked it in Switzerland and, and Italy. But what I've heard about France is that even in the best of times, it's pretty open country. There's not a ton of population centers, and it can feel quite barren in stretches. And that's when people are usually walking kind of in, quote, pilgrim season. <laughs> you were far outside of it. What was it like in January? Yes, as I'm sure, as I'm sure you and some of your listeners will know, if you're following a pilgrim route, this is not the same thing as following a hiking route. So there may be beautiful landscapes and there may be areas that are a pleasure to walk through, but it's just as likely that you'll be walking through areas of light industry, of heavy agriculture, or just very dull landscapes. And so I think that, yes, the early stages of the Via Francigena through northern France, which is former industry and, and open plains, open farming country, with some historic sites, but they're quite sparse. I think it, it is potentially quite a dull, quite an unrewarding stretch. But it turned out that walking in winter really transformed the experience for me. And this is the reason why. As I suggested in my previous answer, I set out on this journey following this compulsion I didn't fully understand. And one of the conditions of that was to start walking as soon as possible. I knew that if I delayed, I would come up with reasons against doing it, or there would be small changes in my life that suddenly made it seem like an impossible thing to do. I'd meet someone I liked, I'd get a promotion, something like that. The way it worked out in terms of timetabling, that meant leaving on the 1st of January. And although I was a bit better prepared, I don't think I had fully planned out the practicalities of walking in the winter and walking in the snow. And it turned out the winter of 2012-2013 in Europe was an unusually cold one. We often get snow that comes for a few days and then passes on, but it just so happened that we had snow and then the temperatures dropped below zero and, and the snow basically stayed for most of my first two months of walking. And what this meant that I was, I was walking by myself, I was walking through this less hospitable terrain, and two things happened. First of all, the dull plains became this astonishing winter landscape. It was like I was walking through desert, it was like I was walking through an Arctic wilderness. It was very, very beautiful. And the second thing that happened was because people are not used to seeing pilgrims, well, they're not used to pilgrims on this route at all, really, because it's very little walked in comparison to the Camino. But also, people are not used to seeing pilgrims at this time of year. And so the amount of kindness and of hospitality I was shown was, I expect, far more than I could have anticipated if I'd walked six months later than that. And so because it was cold, I, I think I, I camped out one night when it was mild, but I, I basically it was too cold to camp out, or maybe I wasn't hardy enough. And so what this means is that really every night I was looking for someone to take me in, whether that was a family, whether that was a, a presbytery, or whether that was just the floor of a, a room attached to a church. And this meant that almost every single night I met a stranger. And because I speak fairly good French, I was able to talk to them, to learn about their lives. And very quickly, this became the focus of my interests, learning more about the lives of the believers that I was staying with. And that set a model for the entire journey. It's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that stood out to me in reading that section of your walk through France was, I think at one point you referenced learning how to be lonely. What did you learn about how to be lonely or about loneliness in this section? When people talk to me about the experience of going on a pilgrimage, people who are maybe 
thinking of going on their own or, or who are thinking of walking for a longer amount of time. The model I use to compare it to is just think of it as like your everyday job. So most people, they go to an office and they work for, let's say, eight to 10 hours a day. And when you're on pilgrimage, you substitute the working for the walking. So most of the day, you're just covering ground, you're eating up miles, you're getting to the next destination. And that can be boring at times, that can be demanding at times, but it really is you know, most of your day. And it obviously depends on how you structure your walk, whether you walk with people, whether you walk by yourself, whether you walk on a popular route or you walk on a, an unpopular route. But every pilgrim will have some experience of several hours or several days where they barely talk to anyone else and they're just alone and they're with their own thoughts. And for most of us, this is a very unusual experience. This is really the opposite of our everyday lives. Regardless of whether you live in a city or whether you live in your countryside, most of the time there's sound around you and there are communication devices around you, if not actual people around you, and there's distraction. And so to begin with, it's simply a process of getting used to the fact that there are very few distractions and that there are few people to talk to and there are few sort of ways of taking your attention away from yourself. And so the limits of your personality are no longer the people and the technology and the sources of information around you. They are, in fact, the confines of your own skull or comparatively the limits of the horizon. And so to begin with, you just have this process of readjustment. What happened for me was once I'd got through the process of readjustment, I quickly realized that spending time by myself inside my own head meant spending time with memories and experiences that I didn't really want to engage with. I've mentioned to you this period of mental illness before the walk. And even though I was out of that, I think that there were issues from that time which I, I had not fully resolved and that I still found difficult to engage with. And over the course of the walk, those memories occupied more and more of my headspace, but it wasn't really a process of working through them or resolving them. To begin with, it was just dull iteration, you know, the same memory or the same thought, repeating and repeating and repeating. As you transition then into Switzerland, I found myself at multiple points holding my breath with concern for your well-being. There's the falling in the Drance River, there's the moment where you cross the train bridge, and then the crossing of the Alps in the dead of winter. You know, every pilgrim on the Via Francigena times their starting point to get to the Alps in June at the earliest. You didn't do that. What was going through your mind as you took on these significant risks? The honest answer to that question would be not a great deal. So... <laughs> So I mentioned that I set out on the 1st of January for these, these timetabling reasons. At the time, I imagined that I had done a sufficient amount of planning and preparation. Not a huge amount, but a sufficient amount. What I quickly found was that that, that was not the case, that I was underprepared and I had under-anticipated how difficult it would be to navigate, to cross this landscape during the winter. Now, this is potentially evidence of a reckless naivety. But I think it may have been the case that on some level, I understood the fact 
that if I did a great deal of preparation, I would become daunted and I would become intimidated. And so there may have been some self-protecting area of the subconscious, which was guarding against too much preparation. You know, I was telling myself in some buried level, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. Whatever the problems are, you'll overcome them. I wouldn't recommend this to anyone, but it does sort of work in that each new challenge, I often was only confronted by the challenge when I was already part of the way into it. I was a bit too far along to go back. So the examples that you're talking about, this is when I'm climbing up through the latter stages of the Swiss route or the major area of crossing over the Alps. And in each case, this dangerous situation is brought about not really because I'm intentionally looking for a dangerous situation. I should point out, I'm really not a courageous person at all. <laughs> what had happened is I'd just taken a wrong turn or I'd made a mistake. And by trying to fix the mistake, I'd then compounded it with another mistake. And in each case, yes, I was in a dangerous or potentially life-threatening situation. But often what I found was because I was not very experienced, I didn't recognize that I was in a life-threatening situation until it, I was really overwhelmed by the situation, at which point a sort of survival instinct kicks in. You don't have very much time to beat yourself up or think what you could have done differently. You're just desperately scrabbling to try and make it out of the situation you've trapped yourself in. The other thing that happened over the course of the walk, and I think it probably began when I was crossing over the Alps, is that I discovered in myself an element of of fight back, a sort of urgent desire to carry on living. This seems like a normal or, or even human impulse to share. But this was something that up until that point, I had not been aware of. So during this period of depression, there was quite a long period of time when I was suicidal. And I didn't really believe that I was going to carry on living. And so then to be in a dangerous situation and to find that you don't just give up, that you actually struggle and strive to stay alive that was uh, that was something that built my confidence as i carried on walking and as you make it to grand saint bernard and then begin your descent into italy one of the major goals of the first half of your walk comes into focus which is arriving in rome for easter and that is something that comes up a lot in the narrative that that's a goal that you want to make it there in time and you make it there in time but then it isn't quite what you were hoping for. What went wrong in Rome? That's exactly right how you describe it. Midway through my journey, the previous Pope had announced that he was stepping down from the job, which, as you know, doesn't happen very often. <laughs> and then as I was heading through Italy, as I was nearing Rome, the new Pope, the current Pope, Pope Francis, he was elected by the Cardinals. So there was a real sense of celebration and possibility as I was moving through Italy, staying predominantly with religious communities. I could see they were very excited. To begin with, they were surprised, shocked, disappointed, but then they were excited by this unusual and new situation. And that intensified the experience I was already having, which was this ambition to get to Rome in time for Easter. And as I moved along, and inevitably there were times when I was demoralized, or I was tired, or I was losing my way, I was losing my patience, increasingly that admittedly quite arbitrary deadline became a powerful motivating tool. And so then when I got to Rome, I think sort of one or two days into Holy Week, 
I felt an enormous sense of achievement. And I felt as if I was sharing in, I'm not a Catholic, I should say, and I'm not actually a believer, but I felt that I was sharing in this sort of special moment with all of the pilgrims from around the world who had gathered in Rome for, for that occasion. Then what happened is that I went to a number of the public ceremonies that take place in Rome during Holy Week. So on Good Friday, there's a large procession that takes place outside the Colosseum. And then on Sunday, there's the service that takes place outside St. Peter's Basilica, which is on TV all over the world. It was while attending these public events that I understood something I hadn't realized up until that point. When I was staying with small communities of monks and nuns, you know, a handful of Franciscan brothers in a remote chapel in the middle of nowhere. First of all, nobody ever inquired about the particularities of my beliefs. And so I would just go along to the service with them. I would often feel a sense of calm or a sense of collective identity or a sense of something greater than myself. In a, in a modest way, I would find those services rewarding and nourishing. And then I would carry on my day and I'd walk and I wouldn't really ever wrestle with the question of why, as a non-believer, I was taking part in this religious ritual or what I was hoping to get out of taking part in a religious ritual. And that remained the case up until this week in Rome. And then when I was attending these massive public events, I was suddenly surrounded by real believers for whom the Easter narrative is not a, a pretty story or a series of interesting metaphors for whom it's something that really happened. And I was suddenly aware of the gulf between what this meant to everyone around me and what this meant to me. And whereas I'd got something out of these small religious services, when confronted with the services at their most spectacular, I actually felt that I was an imposter, that I was an outsider, that I wasn't really meant to be there. Equally, the effect of being in the city, having spent so much time by myself up until this point, was overwhelming. And so midway through that Sunday service, I began to feel I was having a panic attack. And so I had to not only leave the service, but also leave Rome soon after. And so at that point, this question that had remained dormant then moved to the front of my mind, which is, if you don't believe and you don't think that completing a pilgrimage is going to earn you any sort of merit or virtue in the kind of cosmic sense. And rather than building up your confidence, the journey seems to be bringing back some of the symptoms you had hoped you were escaping, then why keep walking? And that became the, the struggle in my mind for the second part of the pilgrimage. Why did you keep walking? Well, to begin with, I didn't have anything better to do. You know? <laughs> and I'd got this far, I thought, might as well keep going. And there was also the fact that I realized at that point, in contrast to being in a city full of people, just putting one foot in front of the other, trudging along a remote path somewhere in Italy or the Balkans, was actually kind of easy for me. It was kind of a relief. So to begin with, I just was putting one foot in front of the other and kept going because I didn't know what else to do. And this remained the case as I crossed over the Adriatic and started walking in the Balkans. So Albania, Macedonia, Greece, that was the next stage of the walk. And at this point, I was following the Via Ignatia, which is sort of the old Roman road that used to lead from Rome to Constantinople as it was then and Istanbul as it is now. And, you know, I was still staying with people night after night. So it was the interest of the people I met. And I was getting to know a little bit more about Orthodox Christianity. I was raised in the Church of England. So 
Catholic services are very familiar, but Orthodox Christianity is pretty unfamiliar. And so I was bewildered often by that. But at the same time, I felt like I was really seeing something new. But this problem, why walk, why walk, why walk if you don't believe, that still kept nagging at my mind. This remained the case for much of that middle part of the walk. And it became something like a crisis when I reached Thessaloniki in Greece. Before I had started on the walk, as well as having these problems with mental illness, I had also had problems with drinking. And at the point of this walk, I had not been drinking. I'd been sober for about two years. But as I was beginning to feel more isolated, more like an outsider or even an imposter, and also because there were fewer people I could talk with now, I was basically relying on people speaking English. So I was becoming more isolated and I was becoming less able to deal with that isolation. And those memories and those experiences from the past, they were occupying more and more space in my waking thoughts. And so when I was in Thessaloniki, I actually started drinking again. and I lost a few days to essentially a binge. And it was when I came out of that that I began to think to myself, well, I now have clear evidence that this journey is having the opposite effect to the one that I hoped. I hoped it would build me up again. And in fact, it's making things worse. So perhaps what I should do is... When I reach Istanbul, I should book a flight home back to the UK and bring this journey to an end. And as I was approaching Istanbul, I believed that that's what I was going to do. I became increasingly emotionally invested in your journey as I was reading through it and I was rooting for you. And so there's that rebound in southern Italy and Albania where it seems like things are back on track. And then as you describe that decline in Macedonia and Greece to the point where you you write, I realized the journey was damaging me. And I'll apologize for a long-winded question here in advance, but I was reading your book in conjunction with Timothy Egan's account of his pilgrimage on the Via Francigena. So I was reading yours, and I was listening to his on audiobook as I was walking around. And as I did, I found myself drawn to your approach and frustrated by his, which had a lot of trains and cars and buses, interruptions to the flow of what resonates for me as a pilgrimage experience. But I also paused as I moved further into each book. For all of his disruptions, he seemed to be making spiritual gains from his journey while you were at times, and seemingly increasingly as the walk continued, doing yourself harm. And it occurred to me that I've come to value suffering and sacrifice as essential elements of a meaningful pilgrimage. But your work made me wonder if I have neglected the limits or the downsides of sacrifice and suffering. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about that. What purpose did suffering and sacrifice serve for you in this walk? Were there positives? Were there negatives to them? That's a very, very interesting question. When I've been promoting this book, I will go to events, or I've been going to events around the country, and often I will meet people who have had some of the experiences that I've had. I don't mean with walking, I mean with mental illness. Alternatively, they may have people in their lives, loved ones, who have shared these experiences. And people often ask me, well, would you recommend walking? Would you recommend a pilgrimage as some way of rebuilding themselves? And I can't say that the answer is yes. And this is the reason why. I think that walking and potentially pilgrimage can be an enormously valuable part of a larger project to rebuild or put back together a life. 
it can take you outside, it can give you some moderate exercise, it can introduce you to the natural world, it can teach you a bit of history, etc., etc., etc. You will understand the potential benefits. But none of these benefits can be achieved unless you already have a base level of health. It's similar to if you're in a post-conflict environment. You can't set up a civil service or a medical system if fighting is still going on. You, know, you have to get rid of the fighting before the rebuilding starts. So similarly, if you're still in a fragile place and you worry that any gains you have made may not be secure, it seems to me reckless or foolhardy to put those underneath the stress of spending long periods of time by yourself, of potentially navigating unfamiliar terrain, unfamiliar cultures, etc., etc. And I think what I discovered in my own experience was that the gains I had made were less secure than I had thought. Alternatively, I had put them under a test that I wasn't yet ready for. I'd been reckless or foolhardy in, in thinking that I could take on more than was actually the case. Having said all of that, it's not possible to go through this life without experiencing some suffering, some hardship, some difficulty. All of us are going to lose people that we love. All of us are going to have to deal with ill health in our own lives, in the lives of people around us. And so at some point in your life, you're going to have to face and overcome these difficult experiences. And Having an example in your own life of a time that you have faced and overcome a difficult experience can give you real confidence for taking those experiences on in the future. Similarly, if you're looking for a model for a way to live, whether that's a series of philosophical or moral or doctrinal positions to try and navigate your life with, they're going to need to have a mechanism for coping with suffering, otherwise they're not going to serve you for your entire life. All of which is to say that even though I had these moments in my pilgrimage where the challenges of the pilgrimage were rather than building me up were actually knocking me down, looking back on it now, I'm very glad for them. And the reason I'm glad for them is I realized that I could be knocked down, I could be knocked over, but I could pick myself up again. And I think that when you are if you are, for example, rebuilding your life after a long period of illness, to have something go wrong and to not be destroyed by it, to realize that it's not the end of the world, I think that's a very beneficial process. It's risky because you don't know how well you'll recover, but if it works, it's a very beneficial process. And so in my own case, as I've said, I was approaching Istanbul, I was thinking that I was going to fly home, and then two things happened. The first thing was that on the way to Istanbul, I detoured off the Via Ignatia and I went to Mount Athos, which is the monastic republic that is, is sort of attached to northern Greece. It's a long, thin spit of land, which has about 20 or so Orthodox monasteries on it. The land border is actually closed off, so you can only access it by boat. You go with a boatload of predominantly Orthodox pilgrims. You spend three to six days there staying in these monasteries. And each day you walk from monastery to monastery. So everyone who goes is a pilgrim of sorts and time there is a sort of miniature pilgrimage. While I was spending time on Mount Athos, I was attending the services. They live their lives according to the Byzantine calendar, which is essentially 
tied to the rising and setting of the sun. And this means you wake up at 3am and you spend four hours in a very long orthodox service. And then you spend the rest of the day either walking or attending more services. So most of the time I was bored and I was confused, as anyone would have experienced when they've gone to a very long church service. But there were occasional moments when I felt that I was temporarily moving outside of myself, or rather moving outside of the time-bound body that I usually inhabit. And therefore I would be able to close my eyes, let my mind drift, and 20 minutes, half an hour would have passed. Very, very occasionally, most of the time, as I said, it was boredom. But something changed while I was visiting Mount Athos. And so the destination-focused approach that I'd taken to the journey up until this point, got to get to Rome, got to get to Istanbul, got to get to Jerusalem. It felt a bit like a, a switch had been flicked. And even though it sounds a bit of a cliche, afterwards I found it much easier to take it one day at a time. You know, I've just got to keep walking for the next hour. I've just got to get to this village by the end of the day. I'm not going to think about tomorrow. And this is just a far more powerful mindset with which to approach a long journey. And it sounds fairly easy to articulate it, but to understand it on a sort of emotional or physical level, I, I think that just takes you know, a slow process of letting the lesson sink down. So that was the first shift. And then the second shift was when I got to Istanbul this is the summer of 2013. There were very big protests going on. This is the Taksim Square protests that were broadcast all around the world. There were big fights taking place between protesters and the police. And I was staying with a friend very, very close to where all of this was going on. And this just took me outside of myself. I'd been sinking down into my thoughts and suddenly there was what felt like a sort of historic event in the, in the history of the country. And it was taking place very close by. So my focus just shifted away from myself. And what this meant was that when I started walking again, there was less time spent funneling into my own thoughts. And equally, there was less time spent leaping forwards to the next country, the next city. Instead, I was just able to pay more attention to what was happening around me. I want to circle back to the Mount Athos part and then fast forward to Turkey. I was fascinated by your interactions with monks on this pilgrimage. And on one hand, I was ready for the book to end with you becoming a monk. <laughs> it's, it, it seemed in places like you were really drawn to that lifestyle. And then in others, it seemed equally like you were wary of it, almost like it was a trap. There's a moment at the end of your visit to Mount Athos where the, the invitation, the opening is there for you to continue. And there's a push-pull going on. Is that a fair read? And, and were you drawn to that kind of lifestyle? Yes, that, that is a fair read. And that's exactly right. I remember when, when that offer was made to me, the offer wasn't stay here for the rest of your life and become a monk. The offer was just, why don't you stay here for another week, maybe a week after that, and just see how you feel. And I, I realized at that moment that there was really nothing stopping me from suspending the pilgrimage, even ending the pilgrimage and staying. The monks all farm, they're self-sufficient. And this conversation was taking place with a, an English monk. So there was enough similarity between our experiences for it to seem a, a realistic thing to do. And I think what I found, what drew me towards that life was partly the fact that I had been staying with so many religious communities over the course of the journey. And I had time and time again encountered people who even if I didn't necessarily accept or believe all of the things that they believed, 
they clearly understood things about how to live that I didn't understand. These people were kinder, they were calmer, they were gentler, they were less afraid of death. And so they obviously had something to teach me. That was the first thing. And then the second thing is, as as I've suggested in my narrative so far, there was a part of my character that was not fully committed to living, to, to remaining in this world. And a part of my character that was attracted to the idea of, of suspending my life, of even leaving my life. And when you're looking at monastic life through those lenses, it suddenly seems a way for you to disengage from the world without having to leave the world completely. Now, I know there are people who think of entering the monastic life on those terms. And as far as I understand it, they never last. You know, it's possible to think about monastic life in that way, but that's not going to keep you there for decade after decade after decade. And the ones who stay are the ones who have this very active prayer life and some sort of spiritual calling that is to do with love of God rather than hatred of the world, to put it very crudely. But those were things I I didn't really fully understand at the time. So it just seemed to me an easy way of stepping out of my life. This remained appealing to me over the course of the journey. But something that I understood in in Mount Athos and understood better as I went along was that, as I've said, I'm a non-believer, but equally I, I had really no encounter with monastic communities prior to this walk. I was aware they existed. I'd never visited a monastery. And I don't think I realized the fact that when a monk or a nun or a priest, when they spend time at prayer, this is not really a passive process of just sitting or kneeling and watching or waiting for time to pass. That this is active. In a way, it's their day job. You know, Earlier I said walking is a pilgrim's day job. Well, well theirs is the time they spend at prayer. And for many of these monks, they have an inner life and they have an inner landscape. And prayer is the mechanism by which they can explore and they can expand this inner landscape. And it's there that they locate the resources they then take out into the everyday world. So as I said earlier, if if these monks seem to me kinder or gentler or less afraid of death, they would argue that it's because of this time they spend at prayer and the experiences that they have there that they then carry out into the external world. And so even though I didn't really experience this myself, and even though I still would not want to make any metaphysical claims for what's going on when someone prays, once I realized that this was the foundation of monastic life and it wasn't really to do with running away from the world or running away from yourself, Then I I also realized that for all the kind of romantic longing I may have for that life, what I imagined the life was and what it actually was were two different things. And the thing that I wanted was probably not what was on offer in a monastery. You've said in this discussion that you are not a very hardy person and that you are not very courageous, but you walk through Istanbul when it is in riot and protest, and then you continue through Lebanon when it faces the worst bombing since the Civil War, both events, which I imagine for 95% of us would send us running home. Pilgrims are used to bad weather, physical ailments, all kinds of challenges, not necessarily ones of life and limb. What kept you moving? Yes, once again, these were not, it was not my plan to (laughs) encounter these experiences. I just got my timing wrong. (laughs) 
when I was in Istanbul, as I've said, there were these protests going on. Strangely enough, because it was so unlike anything that I had experienced before, I had that feeling of invulnerability that comes from innocence or naivety. I have a friend who is a foreign correspondent, and he spent some time in Afghanistan, not during the most recent conflict, but the one prior to that, when the USSR went in to fight with the Mujahideen. And he went there as a young man. And the first time he went to Afghanistan and embedded with the Mujahideen, it was exciting, but it was also just very strange. And the strangeness of it lessened the sense of risk in his own mind, because stuff was still so unfamiliar. The first time you hear missiles going off or landing around you, you don't realize there's a missiles. They're just sort of strange, loud sounds. And so the way that he articulates it is you don't need to be brave the first time. You need to be brave the second time. It's when you go back, you need to be brave. So similarly for myself, the first time I was in these life-threatening situations, the main sensation was one of bewildered amazement or innocent confusion, rather than a full understanding of the risks that I was facing. The second incident that you're talking about, that was because of the civil war in Syria, which this was 2013, the war was underway, and obviously it's still ongoing. I was vaguely trying to follow the route that the Crusaders took, the first crusade, when they traveled through the Levant, through the Near East. But having walked through some of that route through Turkey, it wasn't possible for me to carry on going to the Syrian border and walk through Syria. And so what I did to make up the distance was I walked towards the Turkish coast, took a boat to Cyprus, walked the width of Cyprus, then took another boat to northern Lebanon. And this incident comes from when I turned up in Tripoli, which is the major city in the north of Lebanon. And as you say, within 24 hours of my reaching the city, they, they had the worst bombing that they'd had since the Civil War. And so I, I had to leave the city while there were police everywhere, there were military forces everywhere, there were cars driving everywhere. There was total confusion. To be honest, this meant that for the rest of my walk in Lebanon, when I was walking along the mountain range that runs up through the center of the country, so I was walking predominantly among Christian communities who live up in the mountains and very beautiful mountainous landscape, a bit like alpine landscape. Instead of enjoying what is one of the most architecturally rich and diverse areas, culturally diverse areas of the Middle East, I did feel very unsafe. But something had changed since, for example, when I was in the Balkans. And what had changed, I think, was this realization that I had resources, be those patience or determination or, or possibly courage. I had resources that up until that point I did not know I possessed. And so as I was becoming demoralized and panicked as I walked through Lebanon. Obviously, a part of my mind was thinking, well, maybe I should fly home. Another part of my mind was thinking, well, maybe I should drink again. But something had shifted over the course of the journey. And I knew enough about myself now to know that I didn't need to do either of those things, that actually I would be able to keep going and make it to the end. It's hard to pinpoint what that shift is, because I think it's the kind of understanding that just accumulates day by day by day. But it was something I knew you know, in the latter stages of my journey that I didn't know when I set out. What did making it to the end mean? 
often when you talk to people who have gone through a very big journey, whether that's a pilgrimage or some sort of feat of endurance, and you ask them how it felt to reach the conclusion of the journey, hoping and expecting there will be some sort of emotional climax, you know, the reality is it's often a letdown, it's often a disappointment. And I think this is partly a structural problem. You spend all that time, you spend all that effort moving towards one destination and the reality is that no destination is ever really going to be equal to whatever you've built up in your mind or all that time and effort you've put into reaching it. I think that's sort of inevitable. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. In Kavafi's famous poem about heading to Ithaca, he points out that Ithaca is only ever the excuse for the journey. So whatever your destination is, the point is not really reaching the destination. It's that the destination gives you an excuse for all of the experiences you have along the way. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that Jerusalem, of all the possible destinations, is there's Paris, there's Venice, but perhaps above all, Jerusalem is a city that exists in people's imagination as much as it does exist in the real city of stone and brick. As a result, the reality of Jerusalem is often going to be some kind of disappointment. So for myself, I realized when I was in Jerusalem that, first of all, having up until this point been shown enormous amounts of kindness by the Christian and Muslim communities who I spent time with, who I stayed with, the priests, the villagers. When I was in Jerusalem, time and time again, I was reminded of the fact that small differences of doctrinal opinion can result in major political disagreements and can also result in just sort of low-level hostility, which is never a very good advertisement for the religions that hold these places sacred. That's the first point. And then the second point was, as I've hinted when I was in Rome, by now I realised that any sense of transcendence or connection with something larger than myself was not really going to be found in these blockbuster religious sites. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, when I was in St. Peter's, when I was in Rome, these didn't really do it for me. The places that I had found some sense of connection with something larger than myself were, were the remote places, were the lonely places, were the isolated places. And so in the end, I didn't finish my journey in Jerusalem. I stayed in Jerusalem for several days. And then afterwards, I put on my rucksack again, and I carried on walking. And I left the old city of Jerusalem. I went south to Bethlehem. And then I carried on going south into the Judean desert. And I ended at the monastery of Mar Saba, which is a monastery that is built right on the edge of the desert, on the sort of high edge of a cliff that leads down into a wadi. And when I reached this monastery, I said, hello, I've, I've walked here from Canterbury in England. I wonder if I could stay the night. And the guest master sucked his teeth and shook his head and crossed his arms and said, do you have a letter from the Orthodox <laughs> Patriarch? And I said, no, I'm, I'm afraid I don't. And he said, mm, well, I'm sorry. In that case, we probably can't have you to stay. And at this point, I've been walking for 300 days and I have stayed in about 100 monasteries or convents. And I was amazed in a almost slightly giddy fashion that I'd finally been turned down right at the end. 
So then he said, well, we've got these hermit caves that line the cliffs leading down into the wadi. You could maybe spend the night in one of those. And I didn't really have any other option. It was getting dark by this point. So I said, oh, okay. And so I walked down and I found myself a cave and I got in. And, you know, potentially this could have been an anticlimax. But for me, it wasn't. And the reason was that it brought home a lesson which I had been learning day by day, step by step, which is that my sense of myself and my sense of what religious faith means had certainly shifted over the course of the journey. But what had shifted it was not really the time I had spent in the famous religious sites or connecting in some way with these well-known religious stories. It had actually been in the tiny acts of generosity, of compassion, that I had been shown by strangers again and again and again. And if there was an act of faith on my own behalf, it was simply the process of walking and trusting that I would find these strangers and that they would look after me. And it was that act of faith which was the one that was rewarded. Did this pilgrimage change your relationship with religion or faith? There were two insights about belief that I didn't really understand beforehand and which afterwards I felt I understood very well. They don't apply across the board, but they applied to the majority of the people I met. And certainly they were the example that I found most inspiring. The first insight was a fact that every anthropologist knows, which is that religion is not really about a set of beliefs that you either do or don't believe. For most people, it's about habits, traditions, communities, sense of identity. It's about all of the things that connect you to the other people who share in this faith and maybe connect you to the world or, or something beyond yourself. And that's a lot more important to people than specific rules about what you should or should not do or a specific theological argument about what happens to, for example, the bread and wine. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was, there are religious and doctrinal traditions which essentially say that the world is simple and that the explanation can be found in the Gospels or in a particular body of religious faith and that once you understand that, you understand everything. But time and time again, I met with monks and with priests and with nuns who seemed to have a very different approach. And their approach was something like this. The world is inherently or fundamentally mysterious, and religion is a way of entering that mystery more deeply. And these are people who you know, have dedicated their entire lives towards faith, you know, who spend 30 or 40 years in a religious community, and they're not founding that decision on some bulletproof certainty. They're actually founding it on a sense of uncertainty within which they can settle and within which they can endure potentially for an entire lifetime. And as I say, that's not every believer, but for me, that was a model that I found very inspiring. And the reason is, is that's a model that can apply beyond the strict confines of religious belief. There is nothing external that will ever tell you that you have married the right person or that you have chosen the right job. And that often it's finding a way to settle into the uncertainty of your life and to build a life knowing that you can never know all the answers. And in my own case, that was when I came to the end of the journey and I, I knew I wanted to write about the experience, but I wasn't sure how to do it and I wasn't sure 
whether I was able to do it. I had this example in the back of my mind. So during those long, long periods of time when I didn't know if what I was writing was any good, I didn't know if it would ever be published, I had this example of people who had spent years and years devoting themselves towards a single cause for which they'd never receive any kind of tangible return or reward. You know, no one would ever pat them on the back and say, you made the right choice. And and that, I think, made it a lot easier in the the long period of, of writing the book. Will you make another pilgrimage or do another long walk? When I handed my book into my publisher, which was May 2017, I went on a very small pilgrimage. I took the train from London to the West Country, the West of England, and then I walked in the Mendip Hills, which are in the sort of Bristol Bath area, and I ended up on Glastonbury, Glastonbury Tor, which in the Middle Ages was one of the major pilgrimage sites in England. It's very green, there's lots of pasture, beautiful hills. May, so springtime walking, I was staying in Airbnbs and in a hostel. So this was pretty cushy, it's pretty easy. But I realised something on this walk, which I don't think I had fully realised over the course of writing the book, which is that there was a period of my life when spending long periods of time alone and talking to strangers every day, and encountering new cultures, and new countries, and working out how to navigate them. There was a period of my life when those were the major challenges, and challenges I didn't know whether or not I was equal to. When I first began to walk, there was a real sense of exhilaration in discovering whether or not I was able to do these things. And when I was able to do them, a real sense of triumph. But once I had finished the walk, the hunger, and the desperation and the the longing that sort of motivated me in the first place, those things were no longer there. They'd been answered or satisfied or exhausted or overcome. And so as I was on this tiny little walk in Somerset, walking to Glastonbury, I realised I wasn't getting very much out of it. And that's not because that wasn't the walk's fault. That was because really the challenges in my life now were very different things, you know, potentially more domestic things, but equally difficult. Spending lots of time with with other people, for example, or or building a kind of conventional professional life, those kind of things were things I probably didn't know how to do, whereas more dramatic challenges I now felt equal to. To answer your question is, I do still occasionally hike, I, I do still occasionally go to Evensong, there are parts of my experience that I encountered on the walk and that I have taken with me for the rest of my life, and especially I think they have given me a sort of sustainable structure to improve the kind of long-term quality of my mental health. But I have not since that point felt the desire to do very, very big journey. And in a way, I'm, I'm kind of glad of that because I think it probably means that I'm, I'm doing okay. Thank you, Guy. The book was a fantastic read and it's a real honor to get to spend an hour with you. Well, thank you very much. These questions have been very interesting. and I've, I've loved talking to you. In this recent batch of 11 episodes, there are some recurring themes. But one of the biggest ones that I've been struck by is the diverse functions of pilgrimage. Speaking with Brad, Dan, and Heather in episode 32, we heard about pilgrimage as a rite of passage, later reinforced by Alexander, 
in which people transition from one stage of life into a new one. From John in episode 31, we heard about pilgrimage as an intervention of sorts to break away from a life that wasn't working and create a new one. From Ginny in episode 41, we saw pilgrimage as a step in the process of healing. And today, from Guy, I'm drawn to the idea of the process of building a life through pilgrimage. It's perhaps the natural corollary or extension to that much-quoted line from The Way. You don't choose a life, and maybe you don't just live a life. You build one. It takes work, conscious and deliberate effort, facing down the minotaurs at the heart of our varied labyrinths and continuing to walk ever closer towards them. One of the beauties of pilgrimage is that it is so flexible, that it can spur our growth in so many seemingly contradictory ways. To learn how to exist in our own heads, or to become communal and connect more with other people. To push ourselves through immense discomfort, or to learn when to relent and go easy on ourselves. To clarify our systems of belief, or to simply learn to appreciate the mystery of it all. It's one of the things I've enjoyed the most about getting to do this podcast. Every time I worry that I might run out of new angles to explore, (laughs) that concern is very, very quickly remedied. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Guy Stagg for speaking with me. You can find him at guystagg.co.uk and Stagg is S-T-A-G-G. And you can obtain his travel memoir, The Crossway, through pretty much every online bookstore. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast's Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes along with all of my notes from the road at DaveWoodson.com. Thank you as always for listening. I will be back someday.